0: Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps University, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Today we're discussing the impact of nuclear weapons on the Marine Corps' approach to warfighting. My guests today are Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Fleischecker and Major Shauna Sennett, two of the Marines in the Services Strategist Program, currently working on their PhDs at Stanford University, and the recent authors of an important article on this point in War on the Rocks. Lieutenant Colonel Fleischhecker is an infantry officer and MAGTF planner, most recently as the Chief of Plans at the Joint Force Headquarters Cyberspace at Fort Meade, where he put his SAW degree to very good use. Major Sinnett is an Intel officer who has served in a variety of operational staff policy and leadership roles across the One Marine Expeditionary Force, Special Operations Command, and Headquarters Marine Corps. She is the co director of the Irregular Warfare Initiative at West Point's Modern War Institute and host of the Irregular Warfare Podcast. Nate, Shauna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank
1: you. We're really excited to be on this. I know I've been listening to this podcast for a year, and I've really found the uh, past episodes really thought-provoking, so excited to be here.
2: Well, good. Then the bar is high. (laughs) And we appreciate you having us here, and most importantly, happy that this topic is of interest to the university, and we can continue the discussion.
0: We are so delighted to have you here. And for our listeners, if you hadn't seen the War on the Rocks article, I commend it to you. It came out in mid March of 2021, depending on how far back you need to, to go to find it. But before we get into this discussion on War on the Rocks, tell us uh, our listeners a little bit about what brought you into the PhD program and what raised your interest on this topic or this question of nuclear deterrence escalation of force. And Lieutenant Colonel Fleischer, I'll turn it over to you first.
1: Cool, thanks. So I think there's two questions there. One is about the PhD program and one is about the interest of the, art, the article, the, the topic of nuclear escalation. So I'll kind of address each in turn. So first on the PhD, the most immediate reason i I'm in the PhD program would be a friend and mentor of mine, Scott Cuomo, was in the first cohort and he strongly encouraged me to apply. Uh, and so I, I've been kind of following his lead and really taking advice and guidance over the past couple of years a lot. So he's been very helpful in that sense. And then also, as you mentioned, my last assignment after after SAW was my utilization tour at Marfor Cyber. And I spent about a year and a half of that time really working directly at US Cybercom on one of the joint task force focused on counterterrorism and counter ISIS operations. And there I stood up, stood up this task force day five. I was working on helping to draft their initial campaign plan. And this was eye opening because despite a really great education at SAW, I was really, in many ways, dealing with problems I had not a lot of experience with. It was very much um, very high level, uh, one or two levels removed from the NSC, uh, one removed, one level removed from OSC policy regularly, intense interagency, intensely partner focused. And I was dealing with problems I, I really about how the military force is used in broad strategic context. I didn't have a good sense on that. Um, and so the idea of a strategist program to think and dedicate dedicate a couple of years to this outside the box thinking about how military force fits into a broader national strategy and to think, to think with some of the best scholars and academics on some of these issues, and to bring that back to the Marine Corps in like an incredible opportunity. That's why I, I took, took advantage of that. So that's a PhD program. On nuclear, so if you asked me two years ago what I thought about nuclear weapons, uh, I would have told you they for somebody else to deal with. Uh, if, if nuclear weapons happen, the Marine Corps, that's somebody else's problem, and uh, the Marine Corps is no longer really relevant in that fight. Uh, my perspective really changed about two years ago when I heard a talk on conventional nuclear escalation given by Carl Lieber. Uh, and then the last couple of years here at this PhD program, reading some of the classics on nuclear escalation, uh, so Schelling, of course, and then uh, Waltz and Jervis, but more recently some other folks like Theron, Sagan and, and Powell have maybe, maybe really, maybe rethink how conventional forces, nuclear weapons, how they like, tie together, and really, it, it's, not, it's not bifurcate; it's not one or the other thing, but they work together, uh, and escalation man, man, matters a lot. And so I have to maybe think about how the Marine Corps should be thinking about this pretty important dynamic, which is oftentimes been overlooked in the last couple of decades.
0: Great, thanks. And Major Sennett, what brought you into the PhD program?
2: Yeah, thanks, Becky. Appreciate it. Um, so similar to Tanker Flashdacker and many other Marines, I think who have been in, in similar positions. You, you come away with a lot of our tactical operational deployments, often with a lot of questions about what the strategic reasoning was behind them or the strategic implications of, of what you're doing. Um, and I was certainly one of those people. So as I transitioned from some of those initial tactical deployments to more of a staff role at Headquarters Marine Corps, I was able to see a little more behind the scenes of how, how we think through these things and what strategy really looks like from that service level perspective. And I found that we're asking a lot of questions that are really important, but they're not necessarily new questions. They're just new context. Uh, and there are ways that we can dig into some of the answers to these questions with some really developed literature that's that's already out there. We just need to bridge those two things of what already exists and how we want to apply it. So I saw the PhD program as a, an awesome opportunity for that. was very grateful to get the opportunity to be selected for it. And I think both of us have benefited enormously from the Stanford program in particular, which has allowed us to delve into a lot of the security issues that are are not as common in many programs. So that was was what got me to to this point. The aspect of doing this article is that my most recent billet was at Headquarters Marine Corps doing China Research Group and executive support. And so I've always had questions about the US-China relationship and how we characterize that, mostly from the perspective of how, they, how we interact below the level of armed conflict and gray zone types of competition. But coming into this program and um, discussing this with my, my military and non-military peers and learning about the implications of the, the nuclear component was, was very eye-opening for me that uh, I realized you can't really look at U.S.-China relations without this component. So um, that led me to work on this with Tancro Fleischer and definitely appreciated that opportunity as well.
0: Well, great. Thank you. You two are wonderful recruiters for our PhD strategist program, so thank you for that. Your article builds from the premise that after 30 years of fighting non-nuclear enemies, that we're out of practice planning conventional operations against nuclear opponents. One, how did you reach that observation or what led you to draw that conclusion? And then two, what risks come from that inexperience?
1: That's absolutely right. So, the basic premise of our article is that for the last 30 years, or really the last 20 years of this war on terror, we've been fighting uh, adversaries that are not nuclear. Uh, and this is obvious if you think about this shift to great power competition. China, Russia are nuclear powers, ISIS, Al Qaeda in Iraq, the Taliban are not nuclear powers. Uh, so, that's taken for granted, but we don't often think of what that means. When, one of the big facts is that when nuclear powers have this op- outside option for escalation. I'll talk about it in a moment, but the closest we've come to in the last is maybe Iran, and Iran can escalate with some rocket attacks, maybe some Muslim groups, some stuff from Hezbollah activity, but it's very different from nuclear weapons. So when your adversary has the option of escalation, and particularly with nuclear escalation, we have to account for that, and if we don't, it's an implicit assumption, and as any planner will tell you, an assumption that's not valid, or at least it's not validated, is, is an opportunity for risk. So to be clear, I'm not saying that conventional operations have changed or the nuclear weapons somehow make conventional operations irrelevant. Well, what I am saying is that there's a different dynamic, and if we don't account for that, there's a risk we're assuming. So what does that risk look like? Uh, I think the most obvious form is some, some kind of conventional activity that is misinterpreted by our adversary as a prelude to or part of a nuclear strike. And that's it's misinterpreted. We're not saying that we are going to do some activity that's intentionally or launch a nuclear strike, but it's misinterpreted as such which is a technical term for this is inadvertent escalation. We talked about this in the article, but it basically means we do something that we think is a tactical purpose, like perhaps strike a uh, adversary submarine, which is a mission that the Marine Corps has talked about doing, or we strike some air defense radars, which happen to be also part of a nuclear C2 system that's interpreted as us making a, the U.S. making a prelude to a nuclear strike. All, all those things are dangerous because they not only have tactical application, which is very useful, but they also have a potential for nuclear escalation. And both could lead, both of those kind of operations, again, which are things the Marine Corps talked about in the Force 2030, uh, could lead to adversary nuclear escalation and use. I think bottom line here saying these not, I'm not saying these missions are bad, these missions are important, but we have to think through the second order effects and the risk that are t- by by taking them. And unfortunately, that's a conversation I haven't seen as much or I don't think we've seen as much happening when we're talking about the new missions as the new missions themselves.
0: Have you guys seen this is a bit of digression, but Jeffrey Lewis, arms control wonk on social media, wrote a fictionalized account of a nuclear engagement, a nuclear war between the United States and North Korea. And it started on precisely this premise that there were I'm going to forget it, the specific scenario, because I read it a couple of years ago now. But it's written in the vein of the 9-11 report, commission report, but it is for it is the commission report on this particular nuclear war between the United States and North Korea. And it was an inadvertent. It was a, a regular issue where a Korean passenger jet was flying a regular route and it somehow got a little too close to North Korean airspace because the, the GPS system gooned up and then it was shot down. And then there was a bit of a tit for tat. And there was this miss that ultimately North Korea launched a nuclear attack against regional allies that then escalated into an actual attack uh, against the United States because of how the United States responded and how that response was misinterpreted by the North. But your article goes even further to not just look at the potential for escalation or misinterpretation at the national policy level, but you look specifically at the role the Marine Corps plays in this process and the potential for Marine Corps action to result in inadvertent escalation. So can you talk a little bit about what makes the Marine Corps more vulnerable to this type of risk?
2: Right. So you bring up a great point. So we're talking about strategic implications of what can be a very tactical action when we're looking at where the Marine Corps might actually engage with this. And the Marine Corps is built on this this culture of of decisive war, at least this point in time. That's what we've built at least the last 30 years on. Uh, When we think about the definition of maneuver warfare, it's the essence of maneuver is taking action to generate and exploit some kind of advantage over the enemy, seeking to shatter the enemy's cohesion and create a turbulent and rapidly deteriorating situation with which the enemy cannot cope. And, and to us, that, that, that screams decisive war, military force on force type of engagement, engagement. But escalation is really a strategic dynamic. And so we need to think about what that looks like when we're looking at the direct application of military power to destroy or kill. And a lot of this derives from you know, Marine Corps Doctrine Publication 1, MCDP 1, and war fighting. And the, the the way that that was shaped and the way that that was created was based on a particular context that meant that the Marine Corps didn't have to consider nuclear escalation dynamics at the time. So everything that, that it's based around was based on this, this Cold War type of mentality, but with another great power, but one in which the Marine Corps' role was not specifically, it did not have specific nuclear implications, even though we had some limited tactical nuclear capabilities. So, for example, when we were developing MCDP-1, the the mission was the the defensive mission of NATO's northern flank. And In that context, when we were trying to limit Soviet aggression into Scandinavian Baltic countries, the risk of nuclear escalation was low in that context because the operational concept, as we described in the article, was premised on deterring Soviet aggression into Scandinavian countries. It wasn't directly threatening an existing Soviet interest. And Marines were not expected to be the first in that sort of fight. So there, there was an assumption that it was going to be a conventional war. And from there, subsequent conflicts in which we've been engaged have built on that, that assumption that that engagement was going to be conventional, whether there was a nuclear context in the background or not. So when we talk about the end of the Cold War, the Gulf War, humanitarian intervention we've done, the war on terror, these are all non-nuclear contexts. So we've developed this, this, this culture where our emphasis is on destruction of the adversary military systems and forces and not a lot of consideration about how these actions would influence a decision to escalate or, or use some of these other options that we've discussed. So the challenge for the Marine Corps is trying to take this historical legacy of these these fantastic competencies that we have in conventional war and understanding what that means in a, a new nuclear context in which we haven't previously engaged.
0: Right, because it's hard to imagine a Marine Corps where decisive engagement, where initiative, where overwhelming force and violence, and seizing the advantage, seizing the where that's not baked into the Marine Corps culture. So in a sense, I'm hearing a, a countercultural argument about the requirement for the marine for Marines, not just the big Marine for big Marine Corps too, but individual Marines to have a mentality at at the commander level. To assess the potential follow on implications of tactical decisions and operations, they're shaking their heads, but I, I think we're all yeah, staring I, a little wide eyed because that's a big deal, right? That's a big challenge.
1: And if I can, I absolutely agree. If I can jump on maybe two comments. One is anytime you criticize or come looking like criticizing MCDP 1, you have to be <laughs> very careful. Uh, because MCDP 1 is such such a I don't want to say dogmatic, but it's such such an integral part of the Marine Corps culture. I, th- I think when we, when we want to be very clear that I, we think that MCDP-1 is a great document, particularly the first two chapters, which are channeling Boyd and Clausewitz. And our concern is not so much that Boyd and Clausewitz are not relevant. They absolutely are. And I think when a lot of the reverence to MCDP-1 is, is the ability it has to take these very complicated ideas from particularly Boyd and Clausewitz and make them simple enough for Lance Corporal and Privates to read and understand. So those those are great. I think most of our criticism is really on Chapter 3, where the MCDP starts giving very practical advice, which, to what Sean was mentioning, is very driven by this kind of late 1980s, post-Vietnam, late Cold War context. And so I think that that's the criticism we made, is that there's parts of MCDP-1 that are phenomenal and need to be maintained, and parts need to be updated potentially for this context.
0: So when I was in grad school, we had a professor who used to ask us to diagnose the severity of a problem on a continuum from Band-Aid to Pine Box. And so on one end of the continuum, the problem was easily solved with a little Band-Aid. And on the other end of the continuum, you're going in the Pine Box six feet. There's nothing going to fix this. It's a fatal flaw. For the Marine Corps, how serious is this problem that you've identified? Where are we on the continuum of Band-Aid to Pine Box?
1: I'll take an initial stab at that. and I, Maybe it's a... It's a- it's a hard question to answer because it's it's about risk and not mm-hmm. a guarantee.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so on one hand, we're talking about risks of things that are probably pretty low probability events in the first place. Like, we hope that war with China is a low probability, and we then think that es- that escalation to nuclear would be a low probability within there. So uh, overall, is it likely going to happen? Probably not. But when you're talking nuclear weapons, the kind of horrific side effects, this is an ORM. This is operation. It's the chance of happening and the severity of the consequences. These right. are in- incredibly severe. And so probably not is, is not maybe not good enough when we're thinking about is this, is, is, it's still going to be a big problem. And then I think even more important for Marine Corps trying to be relevant in the joint force and then trying to be relevant to civilian leaders is if the civilian leaders are concerned about risk management and they're concerned about the possibility of risk escalation, if the Marine Corps can't credibly signal to the civilian leaders that we understand their concerns or we're thinking about this, we've developed ways to mitigate the risk then it doesn't matter how lethal we are, we're not going to be relevant and we're not going to be employable. Uh, so I think the concern right now is that if you fail to address the issue, it's serious, maybe not pine box, but like the crippling wheelchair or something like that. But I, we do think it can be addressed.
2: Uh, so. The way it can be addressed is by the appropriate exercise of restraint. And that's something that we emphasize in the article of knowing when and how to use restraint and what, what that really means, even though that might seem antithetical to Marine Corps culture. But as, as we go into the, the concept of restraint and even adapting to take on more of that kind of approach is not antithetical to, you know, the Marine Corps ethos overall, because we have a history of being able to adapt to face these new challenges, new strategic challenges in a way that I think is is, is pretty unique. So we have a, a cult, the culture of innovation that goes back to our, our doctrine, our amphibious doctrine in the 1930s to command action platoons in Vietnam, maneuver warfare, as we discussed, to what the way we approached the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan um, and our regular warfare approaches. So, you know, worst case scenarios, we don't adapt, but we the history tells us that we will adapt because that's the way that the Marine Corps addresses these problems. And uh, the Marine Corps has already shown that it is adapting other aspects of its approach. Um, when you look at the positioning on the Pacific and the way that Force Design 2030 changes the way we look at our, our pacing threats, the culture will come with that, assuming that we, we have the right conversations about what that really means.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. The Marine Corps. Is a learning organization, and we have seen significant adaptation, innovation, and and I don't want to. It's uh, you, you always get a little nervous talking about revolutionary change inside the armed services, but but the Marine Corps has had periods of significant fundamental change. I don't know that that the particular environment that we're in today or that we're moving into for the next couple of decades is going to require fundamental, significant change but we certainly have historical references where the Marine Corps has been able to execute or pull that off.
2: And I'd say what's interesting about this environment is just the pace at which it's changing. So we're seeing things happen very rapidly. So the way that we engage is not going to be limited to a maritime domain or a land domain. We're talking about the information environment and other types of interactions that are happening much more rapidly. So when you ask what the risks are of not adapting it's something that needs to happen quickly, because how how do we communicate when we're talking about escalation across these domains, um, talking about cyber, talking about space, talking about where all these things fit together? So that's probably what's a little bit more unique about this environment. But again, recognizing that it is something to address makes it something that we, we can adapt to more rapidly.
0: Oh, absolutely. And taping a step back, the Marine Corps is not the only service grappling with this challenge. All of DOD, all of the services are doing so today. And so as the other services are wrestling with what to do, is it possible for the Marine Corps to piggyback on those efforts? Is there a joint solution to this challenge? So it would be a joint pub to to lay out the doctrine and how that would, would follow into planning and execution. Are the services focused where they need to be in terms of the role conventional forces play in escalation management and brinksmanship? Or are they focused on the traditional, you know, as somebody who came of age at the end of the Cold War and wrote my dissertation in the early post-Cold War period, when we think of nuclear war, nuclear weapons, we think of deterrence. We don't think of what you all have identified in the article, which is conventional escalation, inadvertent escalation. Are the other services keying into this challenge? Is there something that the Marine Corps can build on? Or do all the serv- are the, all the services in the same boat of needing to shift focus or broaden maybe their perspective?
1: That's a really important, a big question and important line of argument. I think it comes up more generally just than nuclear, but it comes up a lot when we talk about the Marine Corps being distinctive and what new capabilities it needs. Um, you hear it with cyber and some people say that we divest of cyber because we can leverage joint force. And I think we heard a, a version of this argument when we talked about divesting ourselves in tanks. So the idea that the Marine Corps does some certain things and the joint, we just leverage and piggyback on, on the, on what the joint force does elsewhere. So I think for, we think for some aspects of the nuclear shadow, the Marine Corps actually can and should piggyback on what other services are doing. Air Force in particular has been doing some work on tactical nuclear weapons for a long time. They've reinvigorated this thinking recently. And so I think to the degree the Air Force is doing work on how tactical nuclear weapons are, should be employed into conventional operations or more, more generally war plans. Absolutely. There's no need to replicate that. But And this is really important. I think there's two different ways that nuclear weapons cast a shadow over conventional warfare. Uh, one way is to think of nuclear weapons as re- a really big and powerful bomb, and then figure out how the most effective to employ this bomb to make military purposes. So that, that's the tactical nuclear weapons approach, and there's tactical nuclear weapons do things that conventional forces, or conventional weapons can't do quite as effectively, and so we should use them there just like a really big weapon in our nor- normal O plans. Or there's ways in which we need to somehow support the employment of nuclear weapons that maybe uh, striking air defense systems in advance to make sure those missiles go through. And so that, that's, I think when a lot of the services are focusing on nuclear weapons, they're thinking about this tactical nuclear weapon employment plan, uh, which is super important. I, there's no need for me to replicate that. But there's another way that nuclear weapons cast a shadow. And that's really the focus of our article. And this is on the conventional escalation risk. And so to our knowledge is that that's not really being discussed much, much at all across the uh, we're not, not experts on other services, but as far as we can tell, it's not being discussed much in the DoD at large. There's a large focus on tactical nuclear weapon employment, and we actually had some interaction with some of the with the Marine and the J Five Strike Cell doing this kind of doing those kind of issues. But it, 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 we are really interested in this nuclear escalation management, uh, conventional escalation management, uh, where the risk of nuclear weapon. And we're trying to, and the goals, and then not so much to use nuclear weapons, but to signal willingness to use them or con, commit to not using them through the conventional operations. It's that dynamic, which I don't think has been discussed enough. And then secondly, the Marine Corps is really having a very new mission, is first to fight a nuclear armed force. We've been first to fight for a long time, but that that we know that relic came from a long time ago. It was not from the, not from the Cold War, as long before nuclear weapons were a thing. And so when we talk about being these four deployed forces in the South China Seas, uh, able to deter, deter China and be the first to fight, that's a very different dynamic than we've had in the past. And so that requires us to think, us as the Marine Corps, maybe to think more uniquely about this unique role, having a unique escalation risk.
0: So that's a really interesting point. And I want to tie it back to... Marine Corps doctrine. You've already taken a swing at MCDP-1. Well, we've also got MCDP-1-TAC-4 competing. And you mentioned uh, toward the end of the article that competing doesn't account for escalation and deterrence in a nuclear context in the way that it could. What should that publication have said? And I will caution you both to not give a terribly insightful answer, or you will spend years writing doctrine as your payback.
2: So. We, we would like to say MCDB 1-TAC-4 is a really great contribution to the, the Doctrinal Library. We, the things that it adds are very helpful for understanding the Marine Corps engagement and competition and conflict right now. So I th- think it was very well thought out uh, on most dimensions. The gap that we saw is describing two dynamics related to nuclear weapons. So limited war and efforts to restrain conventional operations to signal a commitment to non-escalation, as we've discussed, and then competitions and risk-taking were the goals to increase risk to a certain level. And so it's hard to do that. It's hard to condense these ideas into something that's accessible um and that's something that you know we were struggling with even even putting this together of what's what's most pertinent and it started out as a a much more in-depth literature review of what we need to understand as marines about uh escalation but when we're looking at what actually should go into a doctrinal, doctrinal publication, getting more into this logic of escalation is, is really the, the crux of it. And trying to condense that into something that, again, is, is accessible across the force for those who might actually be engaged in the, you know, the contact layer.
0: Yeah, and this is a great segue to my next question, which is there is the doctrinal challenge. So big Marine Corps needs to be clear in its institutional thinking on this question and we have to prepare Marines to face these challenges. You lay out some recommendations in the article, aside from doctrine about what the Marine Corps should be doing to prepare Marines at all levels to fight under the shadow of nuclear weapons. Tease those out for our listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to, to read the article yet.
2: So the the first part is the doctrinal update, and we've discussed that a little bit, but we want to make that we recommend that that be accessible and and, in a way that makes sense for for the Marine Corps. Um, The second part is planning. So when we're looking at uh, operational planning overall, incorporating that strategic component would help. All of us understand, um, both in, in training scenarios and in real life scenarios, how to account for the strategic dynamic. And again, that can also happen in, in war games. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can have a strategic style in those war games so that as we're going through the planning processes, we, we know to think of this and that it becomes a more instinctive trigger for us. Third, as you've mentioned, the other services have dealt with nuclear weapons and integration in other capacities. This is one area where maybe we can work more closely with the Navy as the other service that's going to be involved in any sort of, hopefully not confrontation, but in that space. Uh, And they've worked with nuclear weapons and integration in different capacities. So we might be able to marry some of those um, experiences and ways of looking at the problem. Fourth, the military support to national instruments. So better integration with the other agencies and capabilities of the government that are engaging with pacing threats. So it's important to understand that conventional operations support something else. <laughs> and we we want to be able to understand the tactical objective versus the strategic output of that. And being more integrated with those national assets would help us do that.
1: So and one other thing we've thought through is, and we didn't mention this article, but this has been a on conversation for us, is you get to decentralize command by doing all the work before the conflict. So you make sure that the, you, you develop your leaders so they understand the mission the commander's intent and you make sure they understand the context of what's happening so they can operate without, without you know, a lot of guidance later on. That happens because you invest a lot beforehand. So all, all the things we've talked about before really is about investing in leaders so they understand dynamics and they understand like the context. What, one other thing too is maybe, maybe develop some SOPs for various restraints and risk, risk levels. That kind of standard practice across the service, or at least across, or maybe at least within the Indo-Pacific region, and think through at this level of escalation risk, we're willing to strike these targets. And this is just understood and known, and very easily, and Rangers just tra- trained and drilled on knowing what those risk risk levels are and what the restraints are, and very used to figuring how they adapt their tactics and operations to a given risk level, so they can stop on a dime and swap on a dime. And this is again. All done pre-training, during training, pre-conflict. So when conflict happens, you don't need these long president-to-lance corporal communications chains. They're very simple. We're at this level A, B, C, D, whatever you want to call them. And then we can swap quickly as required but without a whole lot of additional discussion or, or, or direct communications, which, will, which allows us to get back to decentralized command. But decentralized command with the appropriate preparation in, in advance.
0: Yeah. So it's no change from the traditional train how you fight it's just a different layer on the training because we anticipate a different layer in the fighting. Yeah, that makes great sense. So our last question, we ask all of our our guests, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about?
2: We were joking earlier that there's a lot of um, very hungry caterpillar and uh, <laughs> a good night moon right now. Um, but other uh, yes, than that, of course. <laughs> We're immersed in a lot of the classic security literature, which has been really beneficial for projects like this. Um, and I know Sankara Fleshiger can go more in depth on that. I think what's also important for our roles as, again, that, that bridge between military and academic writing and experiences is. You know, having that practitioner literature available as well. So when I just started, it's actually written by one of my colleagues at Irregular Worker Initiative called When the Tempest Gathers by Andy Milburn, who is a former MARSOC regimental commander. You know, I, I, you may have talked about his work before, but from, from the perspective of trying to understand service history and culture, looking at something like that in the context of many irregular war context is just as useful for looking at the future of how we engage with a nuclear adversary uh, because it says a lot about what we can still glean a lot of lessons from that um, just in terms of how we how we solve problems and how we adapt so that's what my recommendation would be
0: great and andy milburn a graduate of the marine corps war college so uh, we are proud Absolutely. to have him as part of the mcu family as an alum
2: so it's just great just to listen to him talk
0: <laughs> he is a smart man that's for sure <laughs> lieutenant colonel Fleischacker, how about you
1: yeah, and like Shauna, I've got a bunch of young kids running around the house. So it's a lot of Mill Williams children's books like Pigeon Drives a Bus and uh, <laughs> Elephant and Piggy are, are very common right now.
0: It's good to be well-rounded. I'm a big fan of that approach. <laughs> Picture-solve. Yes. Right? Yes.
1: yes. Well, Hopefully, hope we get the kids well-rounded and other stuff as well. But right now, that's where we are. <laughs> Uh And then maybe on this topic in particular, I think shelling is in, is indispensable, and uh, actually, one of the criticisms of a lot of recent literature is that it's just it's just t- repackaging shelling in a different ways, which just goes to tell you shelling stuff, both arms and influence and strategy of conflict are really important, and some of the, and many of the ideas there, maybe in seedling form, have really been have been very very powerful and very influential in our thinking, but also I think a lot of doctrine and a lot of strategy and a lot of literature has come since then more generally and maybe less academic and maybe, but relevant, I think, for this cultural movement. A couple of things. I've, I'm in the process I've recently read. is One is Tom Holland's Dominion, uh, which is this kind of Breathtaking view of like the history of Christianity from an agnostic perspective, but it's really interesting just thinking through. He's made a pretty compelling case how much of Western culture, uh, and values are really driven by his Christian ethic, which is really weird if you're coming from a different outside perspective. So he he kind of contrasts it with both most, mostly like ancient, other alternate ancient cultures and how it's just how it's influenced where we are today. So it's like things we don't, we don't understand about what our values are apart from that. Another one is Ben Sass's "Them," which I think, if you think about polarization and the lack of institutions that can society, I think he he has a very accessible and kind of summary of a lot of literature, but also some practical thoughts on what does it look like to deal with polarization and kind of rebuild local and uh, local institutions and kind of come back to some kind of civic society. So I, both both those I think are relevant, uh, not 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 for this particular topic, but generally about as we're thinking through what the society looks like and how the military works within American society going forward.
0: Well, great. Lieutenant Colonel Fleischecker, Major Senate, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at, at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Howell and our brand new show manager, Lieutenant Michael Goff. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University.